On Sunday mornings, we are in a series called Transforming Grace, and we were uh, sort of interrupted with that, not that it's a bad interruption for Mother's Day, but we started that two weeks ago. And this is a textual series going through Ephesians chapter 2. And so if you're following along in your Bible, I know many of you do that. I know that because when I preached the first sermon, uh, I misquoted one scripture. I was frustrated, couldn't find it, it was using an irregular Bible. And I had at least 42 people tell me exactly where the scripture was I was looking for. Uh, no help during the sermon, but afterward, plenty help. Anyway, thank you for that. Uh, We are in Ephesians chapter 2. Before we jump, as you're turning there, I guess I I should say, I want to remind you about our May Grace Challenge. We've been doing these monthly challenges through the year and uh, through the... um, Month by month, we've been challenging you with a uh, a different sort of uh, thing that you can apply grace. And this month's challenge is to speak grace fully. So... I'll uh, ask you how many of you are wearing your red or blue bracelet this morning, okay? And there are some of you like, I don't, I don't like this challenge very much. Uh, that's exactly who it's for. So we do still have a few extra bracelets if you'd like to take hold of those. But the, basically the challenge is connected to the bracelet uh, to not be a complainer, not be a criticizer, not be a gossiper. Uh, just to be focused only on saying what is good and helpful for building others up. So on the bracelet is Ephesians 4.29. Uh, Ephesians 4.29. Nope. Nope. I give you control. <laughs> Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is helpful for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So that's our focus is to speak grace fully toward your family, toward your spouse, toward one another, toward people in the church. Uh, there's all sorts of opportunities to find the bad. Uh, some people are, uh, you know, believe that criticism is their spiritual gift. I mean, they're just good at finding what's wrong with everything. And that's, this is the whole, the point of turning that on its head. So I hope that you'll take up the challenge and, I had a a fun one this morning. Uh, Christy is not here. She's out of out of town with some other Christian ladies on a little retreat, and so they're not here this morning. So I am dutifully uh, guiding my daughter around. And uh, as we're going through the foyer, one of our shepherds, men of God, wise man, uh, says, oh, you, "The two of you, out of the two of you, one of you." is the paragon of cuteness and adorability. And I look and I say, thanks, Brian. Change your bracelet. So, but I think it's sort of a serious one, and I thought this was very insightful. Someone who is a former Northsider, but watches online, listens to the podcast. And to those of you doing that, thank you. And so she started about a week late. But she's got the bracelet, and she and her family are taking up the Speaking Grace Fully challenge. And she messaged me this. As I'm wearing the end, uh, ending, nearing the end of the first week with my bracelet, I've noticed an interesting discovery. The person I most often speak unkindly to is myself. And I thought that was pretty... Not good, but certainly insightful. 
As I think that's true for a lot of us. Even if we're genuinely merciful and helpful and have a desire to extend grace and forgiveness to other people, often we are most hardest on ourselves. So she's using that and being reminded to be a little more gracious with herself too. All right, let's, uh, let's do a, a recap of where we were, uh, where we've been the first week, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, the first is that you were dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2 starts by saying, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Uh, so the first point is you were dead in sin. You can bring that up now. Sin brings forth death. It did first the first time physically in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and it certainly brings uh, forth spiritually if we don't deal with it properly. James 1.15, we said, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's not cute. It's not funny. God doesn't take it as a light thing. It, it, it harms us physically and spiritually. And so that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, before Christ, you were dead in sin. Secondly, we said that you were going the wrong way. You followed the course of this world. And and we were reminded that the use of the word path in the Bible is speaking more to the concept of how you live. The proverb says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So there, there's this path, there's, and, and Paul says you're following the course of this world, which means you're going, of course, the wrong way. There's a scripture that so many of you were kind enough to correct me on is Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says there's basically two paths in life, two ways to live, a wide, easy way that leads to destruction and a narrow, hard way that leads to life. And we want to seek to follow the right path and get on the right course. So now that you're up to speed, let's go back to the rest of that lesson. Ephesians chapter 2, starting, um, and you, this is the, in the, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pause for just a second. The third thing that Paul points out is that before Christ, we weren't just dead in sin. We weren't just going the wrong way. We were following the wrong spirit. He says, you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient. What's interesting is that in the uh, historical context of this, the ancient world believed very much in a spiritual world. In fact, one person that I was reading, one uh, uh, ancient historian was talking about how they believed that the ancient word, world, the atmosphere, the air all, all above them and around what we would call the sky and the atmosphere was full of demons and spirits. 
And not just full, but packed so full that you couldn't even stick a pin, a spiritual pin, in the sky without touching a demon. They, they believed that the demons and the spirits surrounded them. So they were very much believed in the demons and the spirit world. But Paul's using that cultural point to make a, a much deeper one. That you, they were called the following the prince of the ruler, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus called Satan several times in the book of John the prince of this world. You see, you and I, we think of our sin in terms of mostly ourselves. Even if we, even if we think that far with it, when we think about sin, we think, oh, I feel bad. Oh, you know, I don't want to, to, uh, to go against God. I don't want to go to hell. Okay, and all of those things are true, but there's, a, there's something else to this. That when you sin, you're following the spirit of the air, the, the, the prince of this world, Satan himself. When you sin, you are entering, whether you like it or not, you are entering into a spiritual battle. And you're entering on the wrong side of the battle. Ephesians chapter 6 You can turn there because it's just a few chapters over from where we are. But Paul will go on later to say, in the context, of course, talking about the whole armor of God and and all the great lessons that lie within that. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present Darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I know some people who are tireless workers in the kingdom of God, who who sincerely want to do what's right. But, oh, they get into the political battles of this world. They fill up your Facebook feed with every news headline and their political commentary on it. And, and I know that they mean well, but they're getting into the battles of this world. Paul says our battle is not with flesh and blood. That's how the enemy works, by the way. He wants men against women. He wants rich against poor. He wants black against white. He wants us against one another. Paul says, listen, if you're in that battle, you're in the wrong battle. Because our battle ain't against flesh and blood. My battle is not with someone else who's made in the image of God just like I am. We're all made in his image. The battle, the real battle, is in the heavenly realms. And when we sin, when we follow the the prince of the power of the air, the, the prince of this world, we're entering into the wrong side of that spiritual battle. So you need to take care of your sin. You need to be careful. Because your sin's not a light thing. There's a, there's a pattern or a habit within the religious world, a trend maybe. And the trend is this. It, it sort of starts with, I feel like, which I know is a cultural thing. I mean, just pay attention this week and count how many times you hear someone say, I feel like. You might hear, uh, well, I won't go into that. But, but in the Christian world... We, we partner that up, we spiritualize it by saying, I feel like God was telling me, or I feel like the Spirit was doing this or that. 
What's interesting to me is when they feel like what God is doing, where they feel like where God, where the Spirit is leading, is that coincidentally, God and or the Holy Spirit always seems to want them to do exactly what they already wanted to do. That's not the Spirit. Now, that may be a Spirit, but that is not the Spirit. Because Paul's very clear that the spirit and the flesh are often in conflict with each other. When the spirit, when God is always telling you to do what you already feel like doing, you might want to pay attention there. There should be some warning signals going off in your, in your mind. God already told you what to do. Now, now, don't misunderstand. I'm not discounting the Spirit at all. I do believe when you are baptized into Christ, Acts 2.38, Peter said you receive not only the forgiveness of your sins, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. But you need to know that Spirit will not do anything counter to this Word. And often the Spirit will tell you to do things that you don't feel like doing. He will tell you things that seem counterintuitive. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. I know it's not Ephesians, but we need this to help understand the church at Galatia was struggling with this battle of the law versus the spirit. But in Galatians 5 verse 16, Paul sums up a beautiful argument saying that being in Christ sets us free. But he says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit for these are opposed to each other to keep from doing the things you want to do this is the hard part about being a christian is that you are in the process of transformation and transformation is not easy transformation is a hard thing and when you follow the easy way or when you follow your feelings or when you follow the spirit of the power of the prince of this world you're not going to be transformed you see the easy way feels good but the hard way is counter to the flesh Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, in in all this, in in being dead in sin, in going the wrong way, in, in following the wrong spirit, all of that essentially leads to one basic thing, that that is they were living only for themselves. When a person says, when a person is only thinking about what they want, they are living contrary to the spirit. Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Now, I want you to understand here, sometimes when we read the passions of the flesh, we just read that and go, oh, he's talking about sexual sin. Because that's the passion, that's the flesh, those two things working together. And that can be a part of it, but that is not all of it. Gluttony is a passion 
of the flesh. Idleness is a passion of the flesh. Being selfish is a passion of the flesh. The flesh... Now, some people, there, there was a false doctrine that, that, that there was a spiritual world and a fleshly world, and that the fleshly world was all evil. Everything about the flesh, the physical world, was bad. No, that's not what Paul's saying. The flesh refers to human nature without God. You saw it on Friday. When an evil kid... Let evil take a hold of him and spread more evil and heartbreak into the lives of those families at Santa Fe High School. That's evil. That's the flesh without God. Now, that's an extreme view of it. But see, the problem is the world's going to look at that and we're going to go through the same cycle again and again. And again. It's just, it is, it is, they're going to try to come up with a worldly answer to a spiritual problem. As long as you have the flesh uncontained by the Spirit of God, you're always going to have evil. And, and it, it not, I mean, that could be the light end of it. It could get real bad. Another way to explain the flesh is this. I want what I want when I want it, regardless of what God thinks. Regardless of what God says, I want it. Sin is often rooted in what you want because the truth is what I want and what God want are rarely incongruence. Sin is rooted in itself, in the selfishness. Turn to Galatians, back to Galatians. I know we're in a textual study on Ephesians. But Paul does some good explaining with some verses in Galatians. Galatians 5:19 and following. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and, and these things I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's, it's describing for us what happens when human nature is not contained by God, is not subservient to Christ. If you want to, turn to 1 John two, sixteen and following, because he kind of breaks it down into three basic Kinds of temptations. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, this is interesting. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. All temptation. The temptation that you face this Last week, the temptation that you'll face this week are rooted in one of those three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when you yield to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, you're yielding to what Paul calls a worldly mindset. Now, this is important 
because it can go one of two ways. It can go first into the way of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. If you're following along, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. This is interesting as we look at how first Eve and then Adam, who was with her, responded to these temptations. The serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we made of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. Oh, he was telling a half-truth there. And they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, quickly, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Because the most uh, that's a negative example, but the most powerful example a preacher can preach is the positive example. So we go, of course, to Christ himself. Then, chapter 4, verse 1 of Matthew I'm sorry, verse 3. The tempter came to him, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you. If you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see the difference there? Jesus, when he was incarnate, became subject to having the choice to choose whether to do God's will or not. And I have no doubt that some of those temptations would have made him very happy. It would have made him feel great. Imagine a man fasting in the wilderness, nearing 40 days, I suppose, had not had bread in a long time. He had the power to do it. Could have changed the rocks immediately into stone. I mean, (laughs) that would have been counter-infective. Changed the stones immediately into bread. And his flesh would have been fulfilled. Imagine looking at the kingdoms of the world and knowing that in a moment they would all be his if but he would bend his knee to that ancient serpent. 
And I have no doubt the prince of this world could have given him that. But Jesus resisted the temptation and he submitted himself to God. You see the difference there? You see the difference between yielding to the flesh and yielding to the spirit. Not a spirit, but the spirit. All of us. Because we were dead in sin, because we were heading the wrong way, because we were trusting the wrong spirit, living only for ourselves, we're due for one thing, and that is this, that we would get only what we deserve. Sometimes, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this phrase, we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. I don't know why I was talking with this about grace. She asked me, what is wrath? I said, wrath is the holy and just righteous anger of God. Oh, some people, they have a hard time believing that God could be a God of wrath. Listen, God can't be a God of love if he can't also be a God of wrath. Perfect love, perfect anger going together. You see, when the flesh is unrestrained... It produces evil, and God cannot be in the presence of sin or of evil. And so the only thing that God can do with sin and with evil is to destroy it by his holy, just, righteous wrath. And that's a hard thing to hear, but it's the truth. Our sin, your sin, that you committed this week in darkness, in solitude, When no one was watching, there was one. And because of that sin, you and I face the holy wrath of God. Sometimes people will ask me how I'm doing, and I reply with better than I deserve. And that's true. If they're wise, sometimes they'll give me an inquiry as to my answer, because it's not a normal answer. I remember one time I was at the grocery store. We were checking out. She said, how are you today? I said, better than I deserve. She was shocked. I mean, she stood back. She said, no, that's not true. Everybody deserves good things. There's a world... Headed for hell because they don't understand that their sin has broken the heart of God. And it ha- all of it, all of us are facing what we deserve. And the world encourages you to get what you deserve. Your ancient enemy wants you to have what you deserve. And what we deserve is the wrath of God. And not because he wants to give it to us. Please understand. He has never wanted to give us that. And that's why he sent a son. We call him Savior. We call him the Messiah. The one who saved us. You see, you and I have a sin problem. And we must face God's wrath because of it. So let me ask you this final question. Because in, in the church world especially, the wrath of God is not a, 
easy or easy to preach subject sort of weighs the room down. So let me ask you this question. If you don't believe in God's wrath, why on earth do you need a Savior? Did He come just to make you feel good about you? No. He came to take God's wrath for your sin. You say, that doesn't sound fair. You're right. It's not. It's grace. Because you are getting more than you deserve. I know you're done because the outline's done. But if you're a star student, follow along in John chapter 3, chapter 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is only one way to escape the wrath of God because of your sin. There's only one way, and that is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you've got to believe him. No, not just intellectually. I believe in Jesus. I mean, trust in him. Obey him. Yield to him. If, if you've been thinking through the past two, two sermons on this topic. And you think, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm going the wrong way. I'm a Christian, but I just do what feels good to me. I'm a Christian, but I'm just doing what I want. Then perhaps you are not believing Jesus. And trusting him. As Lord, everybody wants Jesus as Savior, but very few want him as Lord, including Christians. Gracefully, Jesus has saved me from God's wrath, and he can save you. That's why they call him Savior. This morning, you and I have a choice. You can try to save yourself, or you can let the Savior handle the saving. I don't know what your need might be this morning, but I can tell you your greatest need before you leave this world is to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to obey Jesus. Now, Jesus simply started out by saying, believe and be baptized that you may have the forgiveness of sins. It's the first first step. And if you haven't done that, I would invite you to do that this morning. There is no greater decision. Maybe you've been, maybe you've done that, but you've slipped back into the wrong path, the wide path that leads to destruction. And you need to repent. You need to change your heart. You need to, most importantly, change your, your life. Whatever your need might be this morning, meet our shepherds down front. And we'll be glad to help you and to pray with you and do whatever we can. As together we stand and sing.